Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everyone, it's James Crepia of the Oregonian and Oregon Live coming to you with another episode of Ducks Confidential. Lots to go over here after what has been a bizarre and unprecedented week, not only in Oregon sports history and Oregon Ducks sports history, but in college sports history. The mass cancellations of every single conference tournament last week, the NCAA tournaments, spring sport championships at the NCAA level, and now throughout the Pac-12 and really throughout all of college athletics, only a couple of conferences still saying indefinitely or a date to be determined later. But at this point, there's no competition elsewhere to be had outside of the SEC trying to do something uh, at the baseball level at some point later in the spring season. The spring season is over in college sports and the academic calendar at many schools and universities has been largely over as well. They will be conducting classes remotely at a lot of schools. The University of Oregon saying that they will be doing so for the first three weeks of the spring quarter, which resumes later this month of March. But at this point, based on all projections, all suggestions, from both the CDC and other major bodies that are confronting the coronavirus pandemic. Clearly, this is going to be a very tough road ahead in all facets of life in this country and in the world. And college sports is just a very, very small piece in that very large puzzle. It is an area, obviously, with great passion and interest. That's why we continue to bring you the latest uh, as we come to know it, but did not want to overload you with a lot of unknowns and with how much last week was changing on a day-to-day basis and hour-to-hour basis in some cases to conduct and even remotely try and project where things were going to go on a, uh, from one day to the next was kind of a fool's errand. So now that at this point, some degree of dust has settled uh, insofar as so many decisions have been made at a very large scale at this point. So many cancellations have occurred. And at this point, the only thing left really to be determined uh, from an Oregon sports perspective is whether or not there will be any kind of spring practice uh, to resume on the football realm. And again, based on all the guidelines, and recommendations from the CDC at this point, 
with them saying that they're recommending no gatherings of more than 50 people for eight weeks, and that coming just roughly 24 hours ago or so, it's hard to fathom how Oregon, or any other school for that matter, would resume spring football practice at least in the timetable that we are accustomed. Several schools who had spring games on the same weekend as Oregon, which is supposed to be on Saturday, April 18th, have canceled their spring games. Several that had spring games before that have canceled. Several who have had spring games after that have canceled. And this will definitely be one of the many aspects and issues that the NCAA has to address in the days and weeks ahead. Because, let's face it, from from an Oregon perspective only here, and I know Oregon State's in the same boat, but this is an Oregon podcast. Uh, from an Oregon Ducks perspective, an Oregon football perspective only here, this is just merely waiting for the other shoe to drop and make and a formality of making it official that the March 29th, the idea that there will be any resumption of practice on March 29th is, at this point, almost laughable. Uh, there's There's simply no way. For one, how can the university suggest that it can only conduct classes online only for the first three weeks of the spring quarter, but that the football team is going to be able to conduct practice uh, under normal circumstances when most every other college and university is not and has shut down and the CDC is recommending many more weeks of groups far less than that. I mean, that's just, as I say, it's just a formality at this point. It's not a criticism. It's just a formality. Uh, they, Initial statement was March 29th. They're sticking by that for now. But it's so so much is changing hour to hour and day to day. I understand there's no rush to necessarily put out the next statement to say it's after March 29th or suspended indefinitely or outright canceled. But it will be. Uh, it will be adjusted far, far further, if not outright canceled. But the NCAA must address this because so many schools, the, the variation for football teams even at the Power Five level, let's not even get down into the Group of Five or to the FCS or Division Two or Three or anything like that. Just at the Power Five level, the variance and variability between how many practices teams were able to conduct and get in before everything was suspended, if not outright canceled last week, is enormous. There were teams who got in the overwhelming majority, if not almost all, of their spring practices. You have a team like Clemson, I believe, got in nine. Uh, I know others. I believe Arizona State got in a healthy number as well. Oregon gets in four, was going to have a fifth, but obviously the fifth being the scrimmage and practice at Hillsborough that was canceled. And there was some uh, lack of clarity initially as to whether or not they were going to have the fifth practice on campus, but then within a matter of hours last week that went from canceled in, at Hillsborough, possibly on campus, to absolutely not uh, for either. Then you've got schools like Virginia Tech, as an example, didn't even open spring practice yet. So how does the NCAA go about addressing and trying to create a level playing field for everybody by way of numbers of practice because everybody's constrained and limited to 15. How does the NCAA, how does even individual conferences try to create a level playing field again and make up for much of the lost time that many teams are going to have here 
prior to the 2020 college football season. It's one of the many questions facing the NCAA. Is it the one that's the most pressing? Well, in the college football realm, it's one of the more pressing ones, yes, and it's the one that we're dealing with and confronting right now, certainly. But in the grand scheme and big picture of what is facing the NCAA right now as a result of their decisions to cancel the men's and women's basketball tournament championships as well as all spring sport championships, no, leveling the playing field in college football spring practices or fall camp practices at that point if there's some kind of rollover, that's admittedly, that has to be lower down their pecking order and priority order. They made a unprecedented, and there was no other way around it. The decision had to be made. I mean, the, 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 folks, if you haven't been reading it, and that I can direct you to the work of my colleagues at the Oregonian and Oregon Live to read as much as possible from them. They've done a fine work there. They're on the news side. You can listen to their podcast. The many, too many folks to name and list, and, and list off. But bottom line, we're still a sports podcast. But if you've been reading anything here over the last two weeks, especially nationally and in this state, there was no other decision to be made here. I know fans are very frustrated. And I know fans wish that things could have been delayed indefinitely, suspended indefinitely, postponed, anything like that. There was simply no way that the basketball tournaments could have been delayed when the amount of the time period that is being called for here is so substantial. The idea that any college basketball team is going to be able to resume in any semblance of its former self in what could be several months down the road, and then you're talking about, on the women's side, a draft that at the moment is still presently scheduled for a month from now. We know that that's also laudably ridiculous at this point, but not a particular rush on the WNBA's part to postpone. They'll get around to it when they get to it, but it will it will come at one point or another. It, it, it will happen. They will have to delay uh, or certainly greatly pare down the level of pomp and circumstance around the event, unfortunately, just as the NFL is considering greatly paring down its event in Las Vegas without fans. Uh, and there, And who knows if it ends up happening in Las Vegas at all. We'll have to see in the days and weeks ahead. But on the men's side with the the NBA draft, assuming that the the NBA season is able to resume at some point, is that draft impacted? At at this point, it's hard to foresee how it can't be. I don't know how the NBA is going to be able to resume its season almost at all, but if it does, and also have the finals early in June so that the draft can be later that month, I, I don't know how that's possible right now. Uh, with the timetable that is being recommended and discussed by the federal government, by the CDC, and in very you know varying dis- uh, municipalities, I don't know how any of those things would be possible. So the idea that the men's and women's college basketball teams would be able to reconvene at some point while also dealing with these other time periods that are on the calendar and the unknown of when those events would move, would they move, would they not move, and, and how do you want to try to provide the information to the athletes involved, you have to be fair to all parties. There was no choice but to cancel. There just wasn't. Then as far as spring sports, much of the same discussion and same points. It's it's unfortunate. It's devastating for the athletes. I, I sympathize with all of them. I, I, I do. But there was simply no way around this at all. For the NCAA, and frankly, many of the decisions the NCAA ultimately made, while unprecedented and really mandatory, 
some of these decisions were being made for them simply because so many schools, colleges, universities across this country were making the decisions themselves unilaterally to pull out of said events, to shut down their operations. Well, once those things were happening, and again, on the local level, whether it was governors, mayors, university presidents, whatever the case may be, in in so many varying circumstances at different places, when things were being shut down to the scale that they were in a very rapid fashion, there was no other way. So I feel for the athletes, certainly, on a human level, but it looks like the NCAA, who came out and said they do intend to grant what they're calling relief, they're going to grant another year of eligibility for spring sports athletes. That issue of granting that year, but beyond merely granting the additional year of playing eligibility, for the overwhelming portion of spring sports athletes, they're in what's called equivalency sports. In other words, they're on less than 100% scholarships. Football, men's and women's basketball, volleyball, women's tennis, and I believe there's one other, and I'm going to forget, forgive me, are what's known as headcount. That's being on a full scholarship. But for baseball, for softball, for soccer, lacrosse, swimming, track and field, golf, those sport and many others, those sports are on equivalency. Their scholarship may be 25%, 40%, 50%, 70%, 80%, whatever the case may be. It, it varies wildly from player to player, sport to sport, school to school. Well, even the additional year of eligibility, all right, that's that's certainly the right thing and the just thing to do. The question is, first, how is that additional eligibility financed on the institutional level? Is the school footing the bill? Is the NCAA footing the bill? That's just a, a detail that has to be worked out. I'm not telling you to sympathize with either entity. I'm just telling you that has to be worked out, first and foremost. Okay, if you say those places have the money, don't worry about it. I can't say I disagree. Fine. Secondly, the scholarship counts for those sports. If those returning players, especially the out, what were supposed to be outgoing seniors in those sports, elect to return and use that year of eligibility, as some have already publicly indicated they would across the country, uh, not spe- necessarily citing specific uh, athletes at Oregon or anywhere else, just some athletes out there have already very much specified they intend to return, even though they were going to be outgoing seniors. Okay, well, again, you have a sport like baseball or softball where there's 12 or 11.7 scholarships allotted to those sports. If you were going to be losing one, two, three, or some variation thereof, or percentages thereof of scholarships as a result of outgoing seniors leaving and incoming freshmen coming in, well, the scholarship count and numbers have to be adjusted. And do you create a one-year, one-off permission to allow for players who are going to be outgoing seniors to return and just let each program have that X amount over? Okay, and then the impact that would then be had to the incoming freshman class, well, obviously there's so much playing time to be had. How do you adjust for that? That's a You could say that's an institutional coach-by-coach, team-by-team decision? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. That's part of it. The other question is, does the NCAA, do the member schools want to limit themselves in that way? And when I say limit themselves, what I mean is, and this is something that I've talked about at length before, equivalency sports, there are many out there, and I would admit myself included, who have called for 
and suggested for a long period of time that equivalency sport athletes should receive far more. That basically posed the question of why are equivalency sports, as far as the structure of equivalency, not the sport itself, not the ability to play a baseball or softball or swim or run track or whatever the case may be, but why is the equivalency model still something in use today? Because it's been around for approximately 40 years, and the athletes participating in these sports 40 years ago were receiving no different a structure and model and system than the athletes of today. Now, yes, tuition and room and board and fees and other things have gone up and full cost of attendance, stipend, and those things have, have been added. But ultimately, the overall structure has not changed. And as much as tuition and room and board have gone up, so you could say the value of whatever portion of that scholarship also went up, well, so too did the portion that was not covered by that scholarship that that athlete's family has to cover. And that's the biggest question that has to be resolved going forward as the NCAA addresses how it is going to make whole the spring sport athletes whose seasons were just cut short as a result of the efforts to curb the spread of the coronavirus, which is obviously a, a, a much grander and more significant uh, issue in the grand scheme of life, to be certain. But in addressing how they're going to address spring sports, one, the scholarship count and how it's financed. Two, uh, to the individual athletes, they're gonna, some of them are going to have to face some very tough decisions because if you were in line to graduate, perhaps you already have, does your family have the wherewithal to foot the bill to continue to send you to school just because you have that additional year of eligibility? And that's going to be a family decision for thousands of athletes across this country, tens of thousands of athletes across the country, not just at Oregon. So that's an issue going forward, which then brings, again, forth the idea and notion of, well, in that case, if you're already going that far, if we're already talking about addressing things to that scale and, and having to take on a multitude of issues in so many sports in the spring that are indeed equivalency, well, then why not just take on the entire equivalency model? And there have been many for not just now, not just suddenly as a result of all these issues, Particularly, yes, out of the SEC, the SEC conference was leading the charge going back to last summer and even predating that, but publicly calling for a recalibration and examination of equivalency sports. And should that model continue or should every athlete at the college level be on a full scholarship, be in a headcount sport? Now, the Financial and economic ramifications of such a decision are enormous in the millions upon millions of dollars to every major school. And I've written about this before, so I'm not going to go into it at length today on this particular podcast because there are other issues we'll get into. You can find the story. I wrote it back in the fall on OregonLive.com talking about how the SEC was pushing for it and the impact it would have in the Pac-12 as there are very large athletic departments at a lot of schools in the Pac-12. And the financial ramifications of that decision, specifically to Oregon, would be quite significant. And now, of all times, where the college athletics world, but the athletics world as a whole, as the country as a whole, is heading into so many areas of the great unknown, and especially when economically there is clearly going to be a very adverse impact as a result of the coronavirus, uh, 
is this, even if it's the time for radical change in college athletics, financially is it the time for radical change necessarily and to take it on because so many institutions are going into the great unknown right now. The great unknown is actually a great uh, pivot point for us for a discussion for the remainder of this podcast. And that is where we'll address the idea of what was lost in the cancellation of the men's and women's basketball seasons from an Oregon perspective. From the spring sports, I could go through each and every single one of them. But again, we've got plenty of time to discuss that because there still are many decisions to come insofar as those athletes and those teams and from the NCAA perspective. But for the winter sports, for those two programs to lose out on the opportunity to play in the NCAA tournaments is extraordinarily disappointing for two teams that had incredibly promising seasons, successful seasons, regular season Pac-12 champions, the Oregon women winning the Pac-12 tournament, and the Oregon men being the top seed in the Pac-12 tournament, only to see it canceled before they ever took the floor in the quarterfinals against what would have been round three of the Civil War against Oregon State in what was probably shaping up to actually probably would have been a pretty good game, to be quite honest. And then had they advanced, it could have been prequels to great NCAA tournament matchups, depending on, on where the teams were sent. Uh, There was a lot of NCAA tournament-bound teams from the Pac-12 this season. All of that cut short as a result of both the Pac-12 canceling its tournament, every conference canceling its tournaments, and the NCAA canceling its tournaments. Starting with the women's side, because the number two team in the country in the polls, I know certainly Ducks fans will argue till they're blue in the face that they were the best team in the country. Uh, Kelly Graves had said that he felt They were playing as good, if not better, than anybody. Thought they were the best team in the country. Folks, until they got on the floor with South Carolina, if it ever happened, we weren't going to know. There were clearly three teams who were dominant this season in women's college basketball, and it was Oregon, South Carolina, and Baylor. And Baylor's strength of schedule was significantly behind. Its quality wins were significantly behind. They All three of them beat UConn this season, ironically enough. But... Oregon's strength of schedule as a result of playing in the Pac-12 was very, very, very good. And it was way, way ahead of Baylor. Now, South Carolina's strength of schedule was right there. And the demarcation line between the two was South Carolina had one loss back in November. And Oregon had two losses, one in November to Louisville. And then, obviously, to Arizona State in January. And that was it. That was the only significant difference in terms of wins-losses. And frankly, in terms of quality wins. But that second loss, particularly because if it came to an Arizona State team that by the time the season ended, dropped into the 40s in RPI. Hey, you have to separate two great teams. One team has one loss. It happened very early in the season, albeit to an Indiana team who was not bad, but not great. Top 25 RPI, but not spectacular. But it was in November. Well, if you want to make that excuse for Oregon, hey, they lost to Louisville back in November, and Louisville's a pretty good team. Well, you have to afford South Carolina that level of leeway as well. And South Carolina reeled off 
one win after another and an undefeated journey to an SEC regular season title and SEC tournament title, and they were a terrific team. And as soon as Baylor lost to Iowa State late in its regular season, all of the prognosticators and analysts in the women's college game started posing the question of are South Carolina and Oregon bound to face off in the national championship? And I'll join that chorus. I think that's exactly what the national championship game was going to be. Whether Oregon had to go through Baylor again or not in the final four was to me a moot point. I'm not sure Baylor would have made it. I'm not saying they wouldn't have made it. They would have had a lot of things going for them playing in the region. They would have been in who knows what the brackets would have been. But ultimately, I don't think Baylor was the team, certainly wasn't the team that won the national championship a year ago. Kalani Brown was not on the team anymore, and she was a phenomenal player. But be that as it may, Oregon was also a little bit of a different team, a much deeper team and healthier team than they were a year ago. Felt the best two teams in the country were South Carolina and Oregon. And by any objective measure, by the body of work and by all the metrics and by all the analytics, you had to give the seeding preference to South Carolina, even if you felt skill-wise and talent-wise that Oregon was the more skilled and more talented team. But we'll never know who is better, and that's the shame. We'll never know. Uh, there will not be a national champion, obviously, in either sport on the men's or women's side, and that's very disappointing. But for the Oregon women this season to have a year that was all about unfinished business, that was all about coming back to, for Sabrina Ionescu in particular, coming back to contend for, and not just contend for, to win a national championship. It was unfinished business to win a national championship. And the journey to cut down four nets and all those things that they had spelled out going back almost a full year ago at this point. And to get this far in and to have a regular season title and those nets cut down and a tournament title and those nets cut down and to be three weekends and six wins away from that goal and to not even have the opportunity is unbelievably disappointing. And for things that are beyond your control, is that more palatable or less palatable? I have no idea. When it's something that is just so unforeseen, truly out of the blue and and by every means and definition out of your control, is that more palatable to a player than something else that came up, I I suppose, perhaps. It's affecting every team the same and uniformly in that way. But for teams who had so much talent and so much promise and who had accomplished so much and were still looking to accomplish so much more, to not have that opportunity is absolutely brutal. But that does not begin to take away from any of the accomplishments of the Oregon women's team this season. What or the legacies of Sabrina Ionescu and Ruthie Hebert and Satu Sabali in particular. That trio accomplished some things that I thought Kelly Graves hit on right on the head when he had said, this isn't going to happen again. There could be some great teams that end up coming through Oregon. There could be some great players that end up coming through Oregon. There could be 
phenomenal players that end up coming through. There could there could be a a more prolific scorer individually that comes through that scores more points by the time they're done playing than Sabrina did, perhaps. Maybe a team is just constructed where there's a, a player who needs to score 22 points a game or something. There might be a more prolific rebounder by the time it's all said and done than Ruthie Hebert, perhaps. Not saying there definitely will be. There, there might be a player who comes along and has just one particular extreme skill set to that end. But to find the combination of talent and skill to play off one another with one another and work and mesh together for the same period of time and accomplish the vast growth and volume of wins and building, truly building a program, building a fan base to go from where they were when they arrived to where this program is now when they have now leave. That is not going to happen again. And the players that come from here on after are going to reap the rewards of their predecessors. They're going to play in packed buildings as a result of what Sabrina and Ruthie and Satu did these last three years in particular because Satu obviously only played the last three. But the players that come in the years ahead they will benefit and play in front of eight and nine and 10 and 11,000 plus people on a night to night basis because of what was built before them. And that's the legacy more than simply. And I I wouldn't want to say simply more than only the many triple doubles that Sabrina Ionescu recorded more than her incredible, Incredible stat line and split lines against the power of the Pac-12 prior to her rival in Stanford. More than the unbelievable volume of double-doubles that Ruthie Hebert put up during her career. It's the lasting power and the longevity and the standard that is set that becomes the legacy that what is going to be expected now of Oregon women's basketball for years to come is being a national power, being the number one team in the Pac-12, being the regular season champion and expecting to win the Pac-12 tournament title and to not only go to the NCAA tournament, but to host, to be a team that depending on where the West region is based could be in a very advantageous position and to hopefully reach final fours in the years to come. That's their legacy that the standard was raised so dramatically and that the expectations will be raised for years to come on the men's side for Peyton Pritchard to have the season that he had, after closing out last year incredibly strong, helping the Oregon men go on that remarkable run to the Sweet 16, but to receive the feedback that he did during the NBA draft process and testing the waters and hearing the things that he needed to improve, being told that NBA teams wanted to see him 
compile and assemble a full season that was in line with what he did at the end of last year. And to go out and do that every single night, particularly in league play, from a senior where there's certainly no lack of film in this conference from any coaching staff, but especially those that didn't make coaching changes this past offseason. For Peyton Pritchard to be able to go out and do that, to score 19 or more points against every single team in the conference at least once, And the only one that he scored 19 and not 20 was UCLA, who Oregon only played once during the regular season. To score 19-plus against every single opponent in the Pac-12, that's a level of consistency and dominance that you're not going to find very often in college basketball. His late-game heroics, where he just took over Time and time and time again in some brutally difficult spots at Michigan, at Arizona. To do that and then just the number of big shots that he hit to keep Oregon in games, to win games, was absolutely stunning. Stunning to watch. A truly remarkable season. So for his senior year to end that way, for Anthony Mathis and Shakur Justin, who came in, came to Oregon as graduate transfers to play in the NCAA tournament. That's why they came here. Yes, Anthony Mathis obviously has a family connection to Peyton Pritchard as well, and that's a big portion of it too, but they came here to play in the NCAA tournament, to have that opportunity, that sense of urgency, that There is no tomorrow that the career is going to end and this is the last shot to play in the big dance, to be on that stage and to compete to go to a Final Four or contend for a national title. And the way Oregon was playing late in the regular season and entering the Pac-12 tournament, they were playing as well as not, and frankly, better than anybody else in the conference. They won the conference regular season title. They deserved to win the conference regular season title and have the number one seed. And yes, as a result of the cancellation, they earned the auto bid to a tournament that ends up being canceled anyway. But they earned that. And they were absolutely competing and playing at a level that was reflective of their record and reflective of a team that was going to be at least the number four seed in what was most likely going to be the West region. But frankly, had Oregon, had had the conference tournaments not been canceled and had the world not turned on its head the way it has over the last week, if Oregon wins the Pac-12 tournament on the men's side as well, I think there was a, a faint chance... A faint chance. I'm not going to tell you a great chance because I don't know every which other tournament and outcome that was going to be had out there. And frankly, a team like Stanford losing was not an outcome that Oregon needed uh, at all on its resume either. There were a lot of outcomes that, out there to be had, but be that as it may, I think if Oregon would have won the Pac-12 tournament 
and gotten three more wins in as many days, and a couple of them could have been in quadrant one, there was a chance that Oregon could have moved up a seed line to the number th- to a number three seed. Now, would that have necessarily been a huge difference? Eh, maybe, maybe not. It is all about matchups. Whether you're a three or a four seed, ultimately, sooner or later, you're going to run into somebody who's damn good. At one point or another, you're going to have to face somebody real good. And what would have been interesting for Oregon in particular uh, in the NCAA tournament, if they were a four seed in the West region, in all likelihood, the number one seed in the West region was in all likelihood going to be Gonzaga. And they had obviously had played each other back at the Battle for Atlantis in November. Had they had a chance to meet again in a Sweet 16 in Los Angeles, that would have been one heck of a setting for those two teams to play. Could have been remarkable. That said, what if it were an Elite Eight matchup? If Oregon were the three and were to get through whoever the two seed would have ended up being, and I don't profess to know, because depending on how things could have broken, what if the two seed in the West region was also San Diego State or something? Now, again, there are some projections that would have said that San Diego State would have been sent to the East. I'm not you know, automatically saying it would have been. But point is, is you could have had a West Regional where the Sweet 16 matchups could have included a Gonzaga, Oregon, and maybe even, yes, San Diego State. Probably unlikely, but maybe. Crowds could have been unbelievable at the Staples Center for those things. Even just with Gonzaga and Oregon, it would have been remarkable. It would have, and especially if they would have played, whether it had been in the Sweet 16 round or the Elite Eight, could have been tremendous basketball. But, again, things that are to the unknown. And that's where we'll leave this podcast. A feeling of, for fans out there, certainly, a lot of what-ifs for Oregon sports at this point. What if things would have been different for the men's and women's basketball teams and the unknown, which is both, it goes hand in hand, but the unknown for those teams and those sports of what would have happened and the unknown of where we're headed to the future. And that's not because of instability or changes at the university of Oregon and Oregon athletics. That's the good thing. The bad thing is it's the unknown because of where we find ourselves as a community, as a state, and as a country right now. That there is so much uncertainty that it is the great unknown. But as many have said, this too shall pass. It will certainly test all of us. And I hope to bring you a lot of fun and a lot of fun breakdowns and discussions in the days and weeks ahead here on Ducks Confidential. We'll get into some stories, and yes, including some basketball stories to be had because there's still some stuff in my notebook that uh, didn't quite get around to writing, was planning to write during NCAA tournament runs for the two programs. And, well, the tournament may be canceled, but my stories are not. So there will still be material to come on the basketball teams in particular. And certainly we'll chronicle all the developments that happen both at Oregon and NCAA-wide for the spring sports in particular 
as those decisions are made in the days and weeks ahead. Look forward to keeping you informed and check out all the work as always in the Oregonian and on OregonLive.com.